Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Hey! 
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hola, hola, hola. And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, we're kicking off our series on the works of Chilean director Pablo Lorraine with his 2008 celebration of Chile in the 70s, Tony Manero. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a regular listener of this show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film through this show or our other series like The Film Board, The Speakeasy, and Trailer Rewind, please consider a regular donation to us through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thenextreel. All contributors are invited to join us in our Slack channel to talk about movies, TV, books, and Inception. <laughs> Everybody's favorite movie to argue about. <laughs> Can't wait to see you all there. And speaking of Patreon, we have another Listener's Choice episode coming up just four weeks away, but only Patreon members are eligible for it. If you want to have a chance to pick a movie for us to discuss on the show and have you join us as a guest to tell us why you picked it, sign up on Patreon to support us today. We sure appreciate that. And with that, Andy, we don't have a blot spot. Friend of the show, Ben Lott, hasn't seen certain women Slacker. yet. Oh, that's going to be a doozy when that finally comes in. Uh, we do have some other follow-up, though. That's right. Over on Facebook, uh, listener Dan Brewer wrote in. He said, hey, guys, you're a new discovery of mine, and I wanted to send you a quick but hefty thumbs up. Really enjoy listening to you on my com- on my work commute. Also, whether or not it might fit into any forthcoming film series you're planning, I don't know. But if neither of you have seen Joseph Losey's The Servant, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It's a personal fave of mine and rich with themes I'm convinced would appeal to you both and make for a very interesting discussion. Keep up the great work. Oh, that's fantastic. I hadn't heard of that movie before, but I looked it up, and it actually looks really interesting. So it certainly uh, piqued my curiosity and uh, is a film I have added to my list of films I want to see. And yeah, who knows? Maybe it'll end up on a series one of these days, huh? I did the same thing because I do what you do, <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and I can't wait to uh, can't wait to check it out. Thank you so much for the recommendation and uh, and jump in. You know, I, I want to add. Just this week, we you started a new group or a new channel in the chat room called Show Talk, and uh, that over the last couple of hours has become the most fun channel on Slack. Uh, thinking about the series that we're going to talk about on this show, and not just on this show, but uh, you know, other movies, other series that we could possibly spin up. It's been great fun, uh, and so that is a great place to join us and share thoughts and insights on your favorite films, and uh, uh, so definitely uh, another plug for Slack. Get in there. It's super fun. There you go. Awesome. So thank you. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I wanted to do this trailer last week, Andy, uh, but I don't know. I got sidetracked by something else, and I don't even remember what the trailer was last week. This week, it's Beatrice at Dinner. This is Selma Hayek's new film uh, from director Miguel Arteta and writer Mike White. Also stars Chloe Sevigny, uh, John Lithgow, Connie Britton, Amy Landeker, Jay Duplass, John Early, and uh, a great, uh, it's a great cast at a dinner party. As IMDb tells it, a holistic medicine practitioner attends a wealthy client's dinner party after her car breaks down. Uh, this is really a, a, a rich poor story. It is a, um, a conservative, a progressive conservative story. It is a, a, a race story story, a, a white Latina story. Uh, this tells, uh, in one dinner party, it, it it seems to tell the story of just about every racial cultural rift that we are, are seeing playing out in the news every day uh, in this country. And I have to tell you, 
I was equally moved by both Salma Hayek's and John Lithgow's performance in different ways. Just in the trailer alone, I cannot wait to see this film. It is stomach curdling. Is that a thing? Do you curdle your stomach? It is st- <laughs> only stomach if you're uh, cooking it and you overcook it. <laughs> Do you it curdle, separates. I curdled my stomach. It is. It is. It does that uncomfortable thing to your stomach, Andy. I can't wait to see it. What did you think? Oh, I loved this trailer. It was such an uncomfortable. Uh, you know, just watching the the situation here was so uncomfortable. Uh, and I loved that. It was uh, just kind of a thrill. And this is the sort of film that I think can be really interesting and can uh, can explore some of these interesting uh, tensions going on uh, with uh, the complexities of, uh, of of race and just kind of opinions of what people are expected of in, in social classes. And, and uh, uh, I, I was so excited by watching this trailer. And Salma Hayek looked just brilliant as Beatrice in the trailer. Um, but you're right. So does John Lithgow as this <laughs> horrible person, but they, they both are so engrossing and really everybody is. And, and, uh, Connie Britton really caught my eye here in the trailer too, as just kind of that sort of wife of, uh, of the John Lithgow. And, and I, I was really thrilled by this. And Miguel Arteta and Mike White have done some interesting projects together in the past, like, uh, Chuck and Buck. And, um, uh, interestingly, I think, uh, I think Mike or no Miguel Arteta's last movie that he directed was, um, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, which is a complete <laughs> yes, opposite from this one, but he's done a lot of interesting things. Like he did Cedar Rapids, which I just absolutely loved, um, yeah. youth and revolt, which looked yeah, interesting. Too. I didn't see it, but, uh, so, uh, and Mike White, I think in, uh, writes some interesting things. And so, you know, it really, um, this really caught my attention when I saw the trailer and I'm very excited for it. This one hits theaters June 9th, 2017 in the U.S. Uh, and that, uh, you know, it's already been floating around. Uh, it, it opened at Sundance uh, January 23rd of this year. I have no other international release dates, but watch for this one. It looks to be great. Well, my trailer, Pete, is American Assassin, directed by Michael Cuesta, uh, written by uh, Stephen Schiff and uh, Michael Finch and Edward Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz, based on the novel by Vince Flynn. Um, you know, I, I kind of struggled picking trailers this week. Nothing really uh, really grabbed me too much. I was really kind of secretly hoping uh, the day we're recording this, the new Kingsman uh, trailer was supposed to drop, and it hadn't dropped yet. The teaser is a killer. The teaser is 11 seconds of pain. The teaser teases. Oh, I know. And the, I wanted to talk about uh, it. I hate it. I was so upset that we didn't get the full trailer in time to record. But So I yeah. went with American Assassin, largely because, uh, because I have really uh, found that uh, Michael Keaton has just really had this glorious rebirth of his career. And I just really enjoy seeing him on screen right now. I find him, I always have really enjoyed Michael Keaton, but I think that kind of since uh, since Birdman and just right around that period, he started finding some really interesting roles and has been allowed to do some stuff. And this is this really interesting opportunity where he's basically playing like a guy who trains assassins. And um, it's this this uh, this guy. The, the The story focuses on this this kind of kid, Dylan O'Brien, whose uh, girlfriend gets killed in this uh, terrorist attack, and he uh, pretty much throws his life away and decides he's got one reason to live, and that is to go after this terrorist group and kill them all. 
um, the government, of course, uh, realizes what he's up to and basically hires him and throws him under the wings of Michael Keaton to kind of train him and put him out into the world. Um, You know, I don't know if it's going to be the best movie. I was kind of torn watching it if it was going to be uh, just kind of a, uh, you know, just another kind of low-end spy thriller or if it was going to be something that actually really ended up being pretty good. But Michael Keaton, of course, was engrossing enough that uh, got me, uh, caught my attention. And uh, so I put this on the maybe list right now. What do you think? You know, I I put it on more than the maybe list, and and maybe that's uh, a, you know a, a dose too much optimism. But I'll tell you what the book is, or the the movie is based on a book by uh, writer Vince Flynn. Uh, Vince Flynn was a r- regular uh, media personality. Like he was a regular on Glenn Beck. He's a regular on Fox. He he uh, sadly passed away uh, in 2013 uh, from uh, po- prostate cancer. Uh, but he wrote a bunch of books, and this one uh, it, it was actually written. Its it, book was called American Assassin. It was actually written in 2010. In terms of the storyline, it is book one. It is a ten- essentially a a prequel of this Mitch Rapp series, and um, the uh, the the first book in the series in publication was written all the way back in 1999. So this is a se- part of a series of 15 books. The first 13 of them were written by Vince Flynn after he died. Kyle Mills has taken over. It is an ongoing series. You get the feeling that there is going to be some excitement around this character of Mitch Rapp if this goes well, and we're going to see more of him. Um, and uh, you know, in the in the uh, along the lines of Jack Reacher and Jason Bourne, I mean, that's that's what we're talking about here. So how well they handle the action, how well they've handled the uh, casting, uh, you know, will certainly determine it. But I'm very excited about it, uh, just because I love these kinds of books. Uh, they tend to be, you know, more uh, extreme than the others of these series that we've talked about, certainly more extreme than the, the Reacher series uh, in, in terms of um, uh, violence and adult situations, um, but uh, very exciting stuff. I have not read very many of them. It's been a long time since I've read uh, this one, uh, but I'm looking forward to breaking it out and catching up on it uh, again before the movie comes out. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see how well Dylan O'Brien carries the film as this as this character who's supposed to be in so many of these stories, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, it looks like the movie's going to be opening uh, in September, September 15th, here in the U.S. and the U.K. and uh, Germany. Otherwise, I have no release dates, but uh, I'm sure it'll get around. So there you go. Andy, are you taking your suit for a walk? Aha. Él dice, yo soy Tony Manero. Tony Monero, Andy, surprisingly made in 2008 uh, from director Pablo Lorraine, written by and starring Alfredo Castro and uh, uh, also starring uh, Amparo Noguera, Hector Morales. Paola Latus, and a lot of other people that I have very little experience with, if any at all. Uh, It is the story of a man obsessed with John Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever, Tony Manero. 
uh, Andy, uh, please, what did you think? You know, it's it's funny. I really think that first that IMDb needs to update their uh, their <laughs> synopsis for this film because it could really really mislead somebody. All it says is a yep. man is obsessed with John Travolta's disco dancing character from Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> well, yes, <Yep>. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they call it a crime drama. I mean, it's this is a dark, dark movie. I really had no idea what to expect. I, I had heard that it was dark, um, and I had heard the whole thing about this guy who's obsessed with Saturday Night Fever. But I didn't really know what to expect. And I think I was really surprised when I watch it, watched it as uh, just to where this film actually went. Um, I, I found myself... Uh, it, it was kind of a, a, a tough watch. It's not exactly a fun film to watch. Um, but after it was over, I did actually find myself thinking, okay, well, I, I can see what he's doing here and I actually found it pretty interesting. So I think that's where I stand with this. It was, it was an interesting film. I appreciate what he was doing with it. It's probably not something I would return to, though. Yeah. Uh, I hated this movie, Andy. <laughs> 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 I don't. I guess I. I feel like there's a certain there are certain words that describe certain feelings <laughs> when you watch certain movies. And I watched this movie, and I my wife asked me, "What did you think?" I said, "God, honey, I hated that movie." And I don't know any other way to tell it to say it. Like, and it wasn't just because there were some disturbing sequences in it. The sequences in it in and of themselves there's nothing more violent or crazy in this film that that is going on that that um you know is is more violent than something you know other things i've seen i've seen a lot of violence on film i you know this isn't a, a thriller of a horror movie but i walked away from this movie thinking here is a film about a guy uh with uh, that that i i see no uh, I do not connect with any of his motivation for anything he does in this movie. The things that he does that are crazy come absolutely out of the blue and not out of the blue in the way that makes you think, huh, he just took a dump on a guy's suit. I understand now why he did that now that a few moments have passed. It's a, it, 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 nothing. There is nothing in here that that I actually feel was was connected to this guy and his his struggles to succeed as Tony Miner. It was it was one of those films that was uh, utterly for me pointless, and it fell really fast to the bottom of my flick chart. I mean, with a bullet. Yeah, and I totally appreciate all of that. I really do because this <laughs> this is a film about a horrible, horrible person. There's there's nothing to like about Raul Peralta here. Uh, this this character who's obsessed with uh, Tony Manero. I mean, he's a terrible person to uh, to the woman that he's seeing. He's a terrible person to everyone in the theater troupe in which he belongs, especially all, you know the owner whose whose stage floor he destroys. Uh, apparently, she doesn't get rid of him because she's also screwing around with him. Um, he's a terrible person to pretty much everybody because he's so obsessed to her daughter, to her daughter, yeah, to the girl that he's dating, and, Who he and essentially rapes, yeah, and yeah. he's uh, terrible to just people he sees because he's so obsessed with this Tony Monero character that um, he he wants money. He's trying to get money so that he can pay to get this stage done, and so he's you know he helps this little old lady, and it's like oh that's nice. He helps her and brings her home only to kill her. 
and steal her TV so that he can sell it to uh, get some money to buy these glass bricks so that he can make his his uh, light up dance floor. Um, I mean, he does the same thing in the movie theater or the guy who actually has the glass bricks. And I was just waiting for that one to happen because I knew eventually he was going to kill that guy. Oh, yeah. You just knew yep, that was going to kill that guy in, in not a terribly grand and grotesque way either. I mean, it's just like it's full of bludgeonings, which is what it feels like to watch this movie. But, Andy, I'm really glad that you brought up this. He's not a likable guy because I can hear people in the audience saying, well, maybe you just don't like, you know, films about guys who are not likable. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, and so I was curious what you thought about other characters that you really like that are otherwise not likable guys any come off the top of your head oh sure i i mean there's definitely films out there with not likable guys i mean travis bickle i think is a great one i really enjoy I, it's it's tricky to say i enjoy his character as presented in the film i wouldn't want to go hang out with him um same thing with nope. uh with michael douglas in uh falling down i think that that's just a fantastic disturbing character and i enjoy watching his journey in that particular film this is another character who who is kind of along those lines just really dark and awful but it's 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 so much harder to like this character and i don't know if it's the filmmaking the storytelling style exactly what it is um but yeah it's really hard but here's the thing yeah. it's it's that it's not just like you know I I immediately went to Pesci in in you know Casino right I mean Nicky Santoro's not not a good guy really entertaining Patrick Bateman Christian Bale in American Psycho terrible movie about a guy who does terrible things but for me that was a deeply entertaining experience this is a guy who does things that are not likable he's not a likable guy and was not entertaining to me. At all. No, yeah, no. Nobody was in the film. Nobody was no. in the film. But, uh, yeah, and I, uh, you know, I, I'm torn because, um, I mean, it's definitely, you know, the whole notion of save the cat obviously doesn't apply to characters like this. It's just like, <laughs> you know, you're never going to like Raul. And if somebody does like him by the end of the film, you know, it really kind of makes me worried a little bit about their psyche. <laughs> Um, but you have to talk about the what could have been the saving the cat moment. Well, when he's saving the little old lady. I mean, when he's saving the old lady, that's an important thing. I'm curious your take on. Well, it. I I was so curious about that because I I was watching that scene and I'm like, okay, this is great. And then he he beats her to death um, in a really kind of shocking way because you just totally aren't expecting it. And when he first hits her, I was like, wait a minute, did that just happen? And I actually had to rewind and watch it again. And because you, I mean, you are selling it so light. It, it's, it's so, it's so painful to watch because he actually, he hears this woman being mugged and he goes down to take care of her and rescue her and the muggers are gone, but he puts his arm around her. He takes her back to her place. She goes in, she has a drink. They sit down together and then he hits her in the head and bludgeons her with his bare fist yeah. to death. And then he feeds the cat a lot of extra food, takes the TV and leaves. Yeah. And then shares the food with the cat. Don't forget, he also <laughs> eats the cat food. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's horrible. And you know it's, what, Andy? He did. He, did, he saved right. the cat. He, did. he literally saved the cat. God, uh, how, did, how did we screw uh, this how up? How did we miss that? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I don't think that, uh, I mean, this is going to be a hard film to talk about, a hard film to judge, because it's not a film that is is likable. I, I just don't think that that Pablo, when he went, he made this film, I don't think he made a film that was meant to be likable. I mean, some, but I think it was a film that was meant to challenge you. And that's my take on it, because it certainly challenged me. And I really had to think about why is he telling this story? Because there's nothing about this that I like. I mean, I really hate this character and I hate everything 
in his world. It's it's awful. And these people are are terrible for letting him stay. I mean, the way that, that he treats all of them, it's like, why are they staying? Only because he's a great dancer and he's the only reason that the theater's alive? Like I couldn't I, I couldn't quite pinpoint exactly what it was that they were sticking around for. So I had to go, okay, so what is it that Pablo is doing with this film that is making me um is the reason that he's actually making it? And I think it really is. I mean, he said it very specifically in 1978 during the the Pinochet uh, dictatorship going on in Chile, and it was a terrible time. And you see bits and pieces of that going on throughout this film. You see these cops as they're they're trying to track down the people who are passing out the the anti Pinochet flyers and and just killing people arbitrarily. And it's just a horrible time. And even Raúl has to hide a few times after right after he steals the TV. He sees the army coming around the corner, and he has to go duck around uh, duck behind a, a doorway and wait for them to pass so that he doesn't get caught because you can't be caught outside after curfew. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible time. And I thought, what an interesting decision for this filmmaker to tell this story about such a terrible person while such a terrible thing is happening in the country where almost it's like, which one is worse? And it, it, for me, and, and I, I don't think either of us really liked the movie, but at least I found an appreciation for it on, in that aspect, saying, okay, there's there's an interesting comparison that he's doing here between the horrible plight that the people of Chile were in when this was happening and this horrible person, and which one is really worse. And I, I just, I thought that was an interesting way to tell this story. Yeah, I, and, and I agree with you, because what you have to understand, if you haven't seen the film and you happen to be listening to this, please go go watch the film. But the, what, what's happening here, the, the political aspect, if you look at the film as sort of a stool, right, the three legs of the stool, we have the very personal aspect, we have the, the sort of cultural aspect, the reflection of what's going on in the culture, uh, and, and that is very much a statement of, uh, again, Pinochet's restriction of the spread of culture, and the third leg is the political uh, uh, leg, and that's what we see where we actually have them coming in and, and you know, treating the artists as criminals, uh, and uh, not just the, you know, what's going on in the, by presenting the stage as something that can be crushed under a boot, right? There, there are certain sort of very on-their-sleeve metaphor that uh, metaphors that are at work in this film, and, and I think that the because so much of the film is dedicated to uh, you know Raul and his experience right his deeply personal experience in this world as a criminal uh, you know and his personal journey to become Tony Monero uh, the the other two legs of this stool are too short and we don't have enough I feel like he was a little bit and and this is probably a, a gross word to use in describing anything about this film, he was probably too delicate in the way he integrated the political and the cultural into the film, like maybe a, a little bit more of that story in the forefront, not so out of focus, not so around the corner. Uh, and I mean that quite literally. So much of the of the camera work is dedicated to putting the the political nature, the, uh, the, the police state nature of the Pinochet government around the corner from our protagonist in his sort of running away from it. And and so I found that he was so sort of kit-gloved with that experience that it really impacted me being able to feel like I learned something, like he was really holding up a mirror for me about what was going on in Chile at the time, and instead just focused on this guy who is ultimately a symptom 
of the other of, of this stuff that's that's happening. But uh, you know, I, I feel like he's so not likable. There's nothing redeeming. It is a film that is you know probably intentionally, and this is why I can't relate to it enough. Is that uh, that this is a guy who is ultimately hopeless and intentionally so. Um, and and that still doesn't make it a film I enjoyed or would ever want to watch again. Did any of that make sense? Absolutely. No, I, I think it totally makes sense. And I agree. I mean, this was early in Pablo's career. I mean, it was only his second feature film. And I think it's... Uh, I, I'm curious to see, as we talk about a couple, uh, the next couple films of his, if we see any kind of growth in the storytelling and, and how his ability to kind of convey the story uh, really evolve. Because you're right. I think that, I mean, I'm pulling that out. I really had to kind of step back and, and really think about this for a while as to why, um, you know, why he's making the film the way he is. Would it have been a stronger film It was if it was really overt kind of comparison between what this character is and everything going on under the dictatorship at the time? Or does it work better this way? I, I don't know. I actually, I mean... I ended up in appreciating it. I didn't like the film, but I did appreciate what he was doing here. I feel like, at least for me, and maybe clearly for you, it would have been stronger if the if that element of the story was a little uh, was a little stronger. Well, and this is the thing that I think makes me a little bit heartsick about how I feel about the film because I recognize that I am responding from this place uh, of of be living growing up here uh, in the United States and not having any direct experience experience uh, with the the world that he is telling the story of, uh, and I. I believe that if I'd had more of that world experience, that worldview, I would have a better sense of and a better connection to um, what's going on in those two, uh, the other two legs of this stool uh, of the the narrative of this film, and and I just was totally unable to connect with it, and and because Raoul's story was so um, ineffective for me, I, I I feel like I I wanted to have some sense that something could change, you know, and. It, it feels a little bit narratively clumsy to me to not leave the film with any sense that there is the possibility for change uh, at, at the end of it when we're looking at a political story like this, especially because we know uh, we are able to go and, and see how things have changed over the last, you know, 45 years. You know, and, and, and to that point, I, I think you're right. I I think a stronger script would have allowed for a stronger conclusion. I mean, there's an interesting conclusion yeah. here, and I'm looking forward to kind of talking about that as we as we dig in a little more. But I think that if if he really was focusing on you know this character as compared to the political uh, arena that the story is taking place in, um, I feel like we would have had. A, a deeper connection between the two as we got to the end. The whole political side of the story is pretty much dropped as soon as he sneaks out and leaves his friends to to be caught and potentially exactly. killed. Then we just go into Raul going to perform the show. And that's pretty much the end of the end of their story, the end of the political story. And that's a big disappointment because as as interesting as that element of the film is, um it really needed to have a final uh, a final element to either connect the two uh, thematically or literally so that there was a, a, a stronger tie between the two. So, yeah, I absolutely agree there. And, and the way the film ends, 
I think it's an interesting end, but I do feel that um, that we're missing that. Well, can we go ahead and talk about that? Was there something you wanted to get to before we talk about the end? Because this this also gets to a, a much more than thematic connection to the film Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, yeah, let's. I mean, I, I think we still need to talk a little bit about Pablo as the director. But yeah, let's come back to him after mm-hmm. we talk about this particular element. So the first shot of the film, we follow our Tony. This is uh, Raul dressed up in full Tony Monero uh, regalia. Walking, we're behind him as he walks through a dirty TV studio led toward the stage door about to find out that he's actually shown up on the wrong date. Today is not the Tony Monero lookalike contest. Okay, and the last shot is a close-up on Tony's face. He's on a bus, and he's following the winner of the competition and the winner's girlfriend. And, you know, because it's the movie that it is, he's probably going to do something crappy to them. But this is also where we have this connection to Saturday Night Fever. And, and this is what I really, uh, I mean, I'm glad that I actually watched Saturday Night Fever before I watched this, just, just to at least get this connection, because I really enjoyed this connection. For those of you who don't remember the ending for Saturday Night Fever, or haven't watched it, there's a climactic dance-off, and a bunch of people are trying to win the prize money. Tony and Stephanie do their amazing disco dance, and of course they win the prize. But Tony, being the honorable uh, person that he is, and somebody who actually respects the art of dancing um, is very upset that he ended up winning because he feels there's another couple who actually danced better than he did. And the whole thing was a political thing. And they're just giving it to him because he's like the the uh, dance club favorite and all that stuff. And so he's really, really pissed that he won the award. After he leaves, he sees the, the other person that he, the other couple that he thought was better than them. And he gives them the prize and all the prize money because uh, he wants to do what's right. He dancing is the thing that is most important to him and he is going to stand up for it and he gives the the winner in his mind the prize that was a really interesting moment in saturday night fever and i i found it to be uh, just an incredible moment in that film I, i actually really enjoyed that film in this particular film i thought it was so interesting that we uh that uh, the storytellers choose to end it on Raul as he sees the couple leave and they and he follows them onto the bus and he sits behind them. And it's almost like this moment where it's like, is he kind of hoping that this guy that just won the prize knows that Raul was really the better dancer, just like the movie, and is actually going to give him the award? Is that kind of what, what Pablo is setting up here? And I thought that was a really interesting moment because it's like... Uh, I'm guessing he's probably going to go follow this guy and, and beat him to death like he has everybody else. But I feel like there's that glimmer of hope in him. And I, I don't know. I kind of liked that. Yeah, yeah, I really did, too. And in fact, there was a there was a visual connection, too. Right. We have that close up on him. And, and what you just described is is sort of the that's that's kind of the end of the film but then there's more on the bridge and there's oh, yeah. and it, it ends up being you know he, he ends up doing the great thing at the dance and and they make some bad decisions after that uh and and then it gets all kind of rapey and it's really dark saturday night fever but the uh but but i actually love that he's just it's it's when he's he is at his very lowest and he gets on the subway and just starts riding around uh you know riding all night the the subway and we have some very similar looking shots uh, of of him on the subway versus uh, you know compared to Raul on the bus and I really like that I I thought that's a that's a nice visual comparison because there isn't a whole lot more going on apart from Raul sitting down and um, you know working on his accent uh, occasionally trying to mimic Tony Manero um, you know I I didn't find much of a thematic connection um, to 
between the two films. Did you? Did I miss something? No, I, I didn't either. Other than, you know, this is just, I mean, he really is kind of like just, uh, you know, frighteningly obsessed with it. And uh, to the point, right, I mean, he's going to the movie theater all the time. He's repeating the lines and saying them as the movie plays. He's he's doing the poses in his room. Uh, you know, he's doing the, you know, flexing with his underwear on and just checking himself out and everything. I mean, he's he really is is trying to be this character and it's like that's all he has in his life is is being Tony Monero. It's kind of frightening, and it's you're right. Like you said earlier, it's like he is the product of this society, and it's like this is what has become of this person because this under this dictatorship, there's nothing else for him, and he's just left with this obsession because that's what he's latched onto. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I, I'm not sure about the first shot, last shot connection, if there really is one, uh, just kind of a thematic tie other than, you know, he's going to the show and, and clearly he's just not with it. He's kind of, I don't know, he's just kind of, you know, not paying attention to things. And uh, and at the end, I mean, here he is. So I, I don't really see much of a connection between the first shot, last shot. Uh, did you see anything else? No, not really. I'm, I, you know, other than just sort of the the highlight of the empty obsession. I do think, though, you know, we we've got the walk. The walk is another com- com- connection to Saturday Night Fever, right? We have the the walk scene on the street, and in this case, we have him holding the suit of Tony Manero, and that long follow walk. Uh, to open the film is resonant to me of the of the walk that we get of Tony Manero in Saturday Night Fever at once he's dressed and it's it's the iconic walk that everybody knows from the trailer um, and and is sort of representative of who Raul wants to become um, you know he's kind of got that stride even though it's through a, a dirty kind of uh, you know. St- like backlot of a TV station that has just gone to hell, and um, you know it's it's everything that the Tony Monero in Saturday Night Fever is not, uh, and I think again that's a um, that that's certainly a statement on uh, you know the state of Chile at the time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, enough about that. We made a comment last week that this was going to be a hairpin pivot from Kelly Reichardt to Pablo Lorraine. Uh, did you when you turn this on? Is the first thing you know? The movie starts, and you said you said to yourself as you you zoned in on your laser disc copy of this movie, <laughs> you said, "I'm so glad that we followed up our Kelly Reichardt series with another classic minimalist filmmaker in Pablo Lorraine." Is that what you said, Andy? That is absolutely what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say it was so refreshing to see uh, you know uh, handheld cameras, cameras moving around. <laughs> Uh, a lot of crazy jump cuts and out of focus shots and movement and uh, you know just uh, characters running and and just everything kind of shaking and and uncontrolled. I, that was really refreshing. I mean, it it does wear on you after a while, in particular just because you were. I mean, this film is so dirty. There's so much squalor in 1978 Santiago, Chile, that it was just kind of like uh, you know is not a world that I'd want to go visit. <laughs> Um, but I do think Pablo Lorraine, as a director, captured that world really well and brought a lot of energy to it with his uh, with his camera work and everything. I do have some issues with some of it, um, uh, which we'll talk about. But I will say right now, I appreciated the uh, the way that he was doing some of his cutting and the way you'd be cutting. Uh, some of it felt very 
uh, kind of Steven Soderbergh started exploring some of the that editing style where you'd be having a scene and then you'd be kind of jumping forward in that scene and then backward in that scene. And while you were having the conversation from the middle part of that scene, um, he does some of that here. And it's kind of an interesting way to approach some of it. Um, sometimes it's distracting, but on the whole, I overall found it much more refreshing than what we had been uh, watching before. Yeah, I I would agree with that, but I would add only by comparison. Um, you know, in so in so far as it was energetic, it was a breath of fresh air. But you know, only till you realize you're standing right next to an exhaust pipe. Like it was, <laughs> it, it was, <laughs> it was, uh, um, it, it 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 was. I I found myself getting incredibly distracted uh, by the use of out of focus. And I thought that was interesting because it it didn't come with any sort of connection to the narrative. I didn't. I wasn't able to see why are we out of focus here from the perspective of the story or the characters that are out of focus. Is there some connection to to Raoul's experience right now that defines why he is out of focus the way he is? I I was not able to pick that up, and I found it getting really uh, di- distracting to me. Uh, did what did I miss? No, that's absolutely something that uh, was one of my frustrations with some of his uh, choices. I, I think overall, I appreciated the looseness, and that's what I enjoyed about what Lorraine was bringing uh, here. I felt like it kind of worked in this particular story, but I, I do think that there wasn't enough thought as to why some of those decisions were being made. Like you just said, the out of focus shots. Uh, it's interesting that he was playing with it. But I couldn't pinpoint a reason for it, other than perhaps he was saying that Raul's life was just out of focus or something. But um, you know that that was a kind of a weak link, if that's what he was going for. Um, likewise, the um, some of the uh, some of the jump cuts were, you know, I, I I enjoyed it. It was interesting. It was energetic. Um, but I didn't get a, a full like thematic sense, like how was what he was doing, the decisions he was making, tying into the storytelling. And I, I didn't connect to that. Totally, totally, totally. That was, and it, it felt like over the course of, you know, our time with the film, it's, it's a short film. I mean, it's under an hour 40. Um, it, it felt like it became uh, increasingly disjointed. It, it falls apart. It gets even more loose as, it, you know, with each passing minute until the third act is, is that the sort of freneticness of, uh, you know, Raul's, personal narrative is coming apart and the rest of the the visual presentation of the film comes apart at an accelerating pace in that third act to the point that it's it becomes difficult to follow well and i i think that was something that was uh, you know an important element that that lorraine really um needed to uh, focus on that perhaps for his later films he will do better at. But I had a difficult time uh, pinpointing my location throughout the story. I don't think it was, uh, I think it actually took me quite a while to figure out that, oh, Raul actually lives above the theater. Uh, like there were a lot of elements like that. Like I couldn't quite pinpoint exactly the, where wait, all of this how was. Did you f- how did you figure that? Uh, oh, at the very end. Well, no, well, that's at, the, the at the end, and also, I, I think I actually started pinpointing it when he steals the glass bricks, or I don't know if he's stealing them or just taking some up the, up the stairs to his room, because so, he's putting them on the floor, and he's, like, laying on them to make his own little thing in his yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was the point. I'm like, oh, he actually lives above the theater. Like, I, I didn't realize that. It was never set up very well for me. Um, 
likewise. A, I agree with that. A yeah, moment I didn't pick that up either. Yeah, it was it was hard to tell. As in the in the sense of world building, I think I had a sense of presence of of life in Santiago, Chile, but not a sense of place. Like I couldn't pinpoint things like that. Um, another issue I had was. Um, that was kind of frustrating is we got this big final dance number, just kind of another comparison with Saturday Night Fever. Raul finally gets onto this show, um, one o'clock, whatever it's called, um, so that he can uh, do his uh, Tony Monero uh, uh, impression against all these other Tony Moneros and do his big dance number. But the camera was like right up next to him the whole time where I never got to see him dancing. And it's like, okay, I... I see that you're dancing, but how good were you really? Like I couldn't tell because the camera was like so in in his face. And and for a final dance number, uh, I kind of was hoping there would be a little bigger moment there. I you know I was torn on on that particular one because I agree with you fundamentally. I agree with you, and so there I am, even at this point late in the film, trying to play devil's advocate, hoping that there will be something that redeems the film for me at the end. Um, and and so I I was trying to to think, you know, about the character's narrative and this guy that I don't like, and he's this is the resolution of his arc, uh, you know, and, and him winning this would ultimately mean that this would be redemptive, right? I mean, that's the story that we would get. That would be the Hollywood ending. He would win. He would discover that he has achieved his goal of becoming the world's number one, at least in Chile, Tony Monero impersonator. And... Uh, he would he would move on to whatever successes that would bring roll credits, but that would be that that would be absolutely counter to the narrative that he's already set up that Lorraine has already set up in the in the film Lorraine and, and Castro, and uh, and therefore of course the dancing then is completely irrelevant to his arc. We already know he's going to lose just because they aren't showing us what he's capable of. And in fact, they have shown us what he's capable of, and he's not very good at it, right? <laughs> I mean, he he keeps falling down, and his knees are bad. Like he's an older guy, and he certainly doesn't have the the uh, the chops of of you know Goyo, his young protege, and and uh, um, you know or the knees or the legs to do the things that he needs to do anymore. So we we sort of already have that question answered. No, you're right, I, and I do agree with you, and I, I I see all of those points. I just I just felt like being so close to him didn't give me enough of a sense of even any struggles that he was having during the dance. And I felt like that would have helped. But maybe it could have been that the filmmakers were just trying to hide it to make it look... Because obviously, he's good enough to be one of the two finalists who actually get cheered on by the crowd, right? Uh, So he's obviously that good, where it's either this young guy who actually you know has looks like a much better Tony Monero than, than Raul does. Yeah. He's young, he's handsome, he's a great dancer or him. And those are the two that that the audience picked. And uh, so I mean he's obviously good enough to do that. So maybe it was just like, you know, he's we can't quite get him to do the dance moves, so let's just shoot it this way. I mean, who knows? Well, I I don't know. I love that you. I, I love two things that you just said. First of all, that he's good enough to be one of the last two when they actually did show us a couple of the others that he was up against. <laughs> well, that's true. And, and really, you <laughs> it know, didn't take much, right? <laughs> it did not take much. And and the second thing that you allude to here is isn't it another fascinating bit that the only. Um, uh, any sort of democratic process, any sort of voting that we see in the in the film takes place on this television stage, and yet it's also um, it, it it is uh, ultimately um, a, a representation of a failed democratic process because um, I think the people 
by my ear, the people applauded more loudly for Raul than they did for the young guy. And it was, um, you know, Enrique Maluenda's TV host that actually chose the young guy. Um, you know, I, I, I thought fraudulently. Well, and I think that speaks, uh, maybe, maybe that's the little nod at the end to kind of the politics, bringing him back in there. That this is kind of what our society has become. Um, there's a political process that's supposed to be democratic, but it's really chosen by the leaders, and they're the ones who are actually dictating how things are going to be run. Um, so to that end, okay, I, I, I give it that, and I actually appreciate that quite a bit. Um, yeah, I guess I don't know where I'm going anymore with this conversation. <laughs> you spun me in a circle. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll let that be. Uh, <laughs> shall we talk just a little bit about uh, the cast? Yeah, sure. Uh, Alfredo Castro, we mentioned he's obviously Raul Peralta, and he also uh, is is credited f- with Pablo and Mateo Iribaren uh, for writing the film. Yeah, and then he also had worked with, uh, with Lorraine on his first film, Fuga, and the next film that we'll be talking about, Postmortem, um, which he also acts in. He's, he's done quite a bit. I think he's been in every feature of uh, Lorraine's except for Jackie. So he's done all of his Chilean films. I, I will say, as despicable as this character was, I mean, he does carry it well. And I mean, I, I, I he's a hard character to like, but I think maybe part of that is because the actor is doing a good job at being that way. He is founder of what apparently is called a, a historic theater company in Chile, the Teatro La Memoria. And I couldn't help but think after I read that, that this role is absolutely the role played by a surly founder of a theater company. <laughs> you know what I you know what I mean? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I actually think he, he uh, you know, in terms of me not liking the film, whatever, uh, he buried himself in the part. I, I absolutely bought it that he, he was this guy. He was a guy who was absolutely infused with an empty obsession with this crazy American film and what it represented to him. And it was a no-holds-barred, I this is something that's going, no, nothing's going to get in my way. I will not let anything get in my way to achieve this goal. And and uh, I, I bought it. Alfredo Castro. I, I look forward to seeing him in, in the next thing. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I'm, I'm curious to see because if anything, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him play a character that'll kind of wash the taste of Raul Peralta out of my yes. mouth. Yes, Because <laughs> this is not a character now, that I want to ever think about. He's just terrible. <laughs> now, I don't know. Uh, I, I have no experience with anybody else in the film. Is there anybody else that you wanted to, uh, that you want to shout out? I, you know, I, I found them all to be uh, a, just a very interesting group. I, I don't have any familiarity with any of them either. Um, so I just don't know, you know, I don't know what else I can bring to the table other than saying that the group of them, they were all very interesting. It was, it was a well-performed group as, as kind of awful as they all were to each other. Um, mm-hmm. But I still liked the performances. You know, I thought they all worked well in context of the story they were telling here. Worst Muppets episode ever. (laughs) (laughs) Production. Uh, This was uh, was, uh, produced by Juan de Dios Lorraine. This is Pablo's brother, uh, who also produced uh, Postmortem and No coming up in our series. And you've already mentioned it, uh, Lorraine's 2016 Jackie. Um, And uh, they, this is part of their, their production company, yeah? 
Yeah, they've got a little uh, little uh, Chilean production company, and they they uh, they crank these projects out um, themselves, and they also uh, crank out a number of them for for other people. I think that um, what was the uh, it, we talked about the trailer. A while ago, um, Cactus, uh, what's the Cactus movie? Crystal Fairy and the Magic Cactus. Remember talking mm-hmm. about that trailer <laughs> with Mike, yes, Michael Sarah and his, uh, all of a sudden his random Chilean uh, film projects that he was doing? That's right. That's this right. With Gabby Hoffman. That Sebastian, yeah, that Sebastian Silva yeah. Uh, directed. And um, yeah, uh, uh, Lorraine was one of the producers on it. So it's just one of those uh, interesting, <laughs> interesting things. I what I love is that these uh, brothers are really kind of helping push Chilean cinema and really trying to help grow it because you know I think it's important for for uh, different uh, countries to really start kind of finding a way to express themselves artistically. And I, uh, you know, this may not have been my favorite film, but it really piqued my curiosity and I want to watch some more of the stuff that they've done and some of the stuff that they've produced. I'm really, I, now I really want to go see crystal fairy and the magic cactus. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Sergio Armstrong was behind the camera. Um, fr- some frustrating choices for me uh, in, in his work here. I found the camera. Um, and, and again, I, I, I found the camera in intentional, and I didn't understand the choices. It's not like it was a sloppy camera. It it was intentional and obtuse. Well, and I think that's what I was uh, kind of saying earlier about the camera work is like it, there was I, I really enjoyed the the life that they brought to it because there's intentionality there and it's it's alive it's moving and everything but I don't feel like uh, as as storytellers I couldn't figure out what thematically they were doing with some of their shots to actually help connect things it just felt like they were doing it to do it but other than making it feel like that much more claustrophobic and messy of a world, um, I didn't really pull much out of it. And again, I couldn't pinpoint where I was. I mean, there were a lot of issues I had, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of it stemmed from the cinematography. I I'm, I say this only as a bookmark, right, that that Sergio Armstrong, he's also behind camera for Postmortem and No, and so I... I I, I'm not equipped yet to really, I think, make a, a comment on just where the intentionality was. It may be just straight up stylistic, and we'll see in the coming weeks as the trilogy sort of plays out. Uh, production design, Poland Garbizu. Uh, oh, you know, really. Production design, hair, makeup, costumes. This, uh, we're, we're in the 70s. 70s in Santiago. What a mess. What a <laughs> what a messy time. Yeah. Fighting place. I mean, it was so dingy and grimy and and dirty. They did their job spectacularly well. I really felt like this was filmed <laughs> in 1978. What did it? I mean, I actually didn't know when this was filmed when I saw it. I hadn't looked at it when I first watched it. And so when I saw it, it was 2008, I, that really hit home uh, because I had lost myself in the period. And so, you know, that this was a 2008 film is something that is absolutely worth shouting from the rooftops in favor of this film. I mean, the look, the feel, the character, uh, wardrobe, design, hair, everything was absolutely uh, fantastic. Yeah. What'd you think of the sex? Oh, you know, <laughs> I could not. Oh, I, sex is exhausting. Oh, sex. I, I really could not figure out this group of people and why they stuck together other than it's like a just yeah. was this like a hold on group from from the free love 60s 
Um, was it just, you know, kind of this, this, uh, raunchy theater troupe and they were all, all sleeping around with each other all the time. I couldn't figure it out other than, uh, it just, you know, everything was just wrong with them and it was just so disturbing and, and, and they were also kind of casual about it all the time. I mean, he had no problem sitting in a bathtub getting bathed while everyone was kind of coming in and talking to him, uh, you know, when he, and he wasn't bathing himself, <laughs> She was bathing him. Yeah, she was bathing him. Uh, yeah, it was not not really not sexually, not really in, delicately. No. Like she was, she was practically sanding him. Well, and he was never paying attention to anything, so he was always just kind of looking no. off because he was thinking about being Tony or something. So it was strange. Well, and there's there there is a, there are some other uh, you know things. I mean, there are some some places where the sex is particularly pornographic, right? It's not oh, just yeah. no explicit. It, it, yeah, and. And, and and so that's a that is an interesting choice in the in the film and uh, you know I know I I, I just I listen I, I I'm not a, a prude about you know porn and film and exploring sexuality in film fine I don't understand it here it was. There, there are two sequences in particular. One of oral sex on him, and uh, another of uh, it, it, what it amounts to essentially a, a rape scene uh, with the daughter. And both of them are, I, I, I just don't understand the level of explicitness in service of the story. I, I don't know why they felt the need to, to try to shock and awe. Uh, with these brief, you know, just really few second clips of of the explicitness, uh, I don't, I don't get it uh, in in service of the film. I, I don't either. Other than you know, the idea that you know this is a guy who can't even get it up because uh, unless he's thinking about uh, Tony Monero and and that whole world, uh, because even when she's trying to you know, perform oral sex, nothing works because you know he's that lost in this. In this obsession of his, um, but still, did we need to go to those places that they went to? It was it was shocking, and it, but it was hard. It was really brutal, and the way that it ends when um, she says something about how you know uh, Tony's never going to grow old because he's in the movie, whereas we're going to grow old, and he like grabs her by the mouth and like pushes her away. I mean, it was like yeah, that was uh, you know as awful as a rape scene. It was just it was, it was. so difficult to watch him do that. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I don't know. I just felt like this film was uh, like, they really wanted to explore the awfulness in these moments just to, just, just to stick you in it. And it, it just made it hard. It really just made it hard to get through. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't have anything else to say on the sex. It was, it seemed out of place. The, uh, stunts were, uh, the fight scene in particular, Werner Sherman, shout out to Werner Sherman. There was some fighting and wrestling, but mostly bludgeoning. There's a lot of bludgeoning. <laughs> um, editing, we've already mentioned some of the, uh, the, the frenetic editing from Andrea Cignoli, uh, which, Actually, I think in service, if you if you already let yourself go on the uh, the use of camera and direction, the editing uh, was of a piece. Yes, it was, and and uh, again, Andrea is another person who will be talking about uh, in postmortem and in no. We will uh, sound Miguel Ormazabal. 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 Uh, this the sound, a lot of natural sound of Santiago in the seventies. Yes, there was. 
Okay. Uh, how to do an award season? This is one of those, uh, you know, uh, films that pushes buttons. Uh, and that means that it won some awards. Uh, it had 13 wins and seven other nominations. Uh, the ones I'm going to talk about are the Chilean uh, Altazor Awards, where Alfredo Castro did win Best Actor, and the Torino Film Festival, which is Italy's second largest uh, film festival after the Venice Film Festival. Um, it is a pretty big deal. And at the Torino Film Festival, it went on to win the Best Feature Film, where it wins the prize of the city of Toronto, Torino. Um, the jury prize for the best actor, Alfredo Castro, and the Fipresky Prize, which is uh, Fipresky is the International Federation of Film Critics. Pablo Lorraine was awarded that prize. And what it said in the, um, I, I don't know, it's just the way that they award it. It says, for its powerful, darkly comic, and obliquely political portrayal of life in a repressive police state, represented by a psychopathic wannabe disco dancer who is dissected by an unrelenting use of a handheld camera. Better than IMDb. Better than IMDb. And, you know, I will say, I think that actually is an interesting element that perhaps what Pablo is trying to do here is say Raul represents the political society of Chile. And, and you know, he is this psychopath and he takes what he wants and he, he kills for it. And uh, that's kind of this political system that uh, the people were living under in 1978. The uh, numbers, how did this do when it comes to the budget? Well, you know, as is unfortunately so common with foreign films, it is nigh impossible to find much in the way of financial information. Um, I will say, Pete, I went so far as to have an email conversation with uh, Lorraine's producer brother <laughs> about this, trying to get him to, to divulge some secrets, but he wouldn't. Um, he said, we don't divulge that information. Um, so I couldn't find much. All I did find was one elusive sentence in an article that hinted at a minimal budget. So that's pretty much all I have. Um, but it did open in Chile August 8th, 2008, here in the States on July 3rd, 2009 on one screen, I'm guessing LA or maybe New York. Definitely looking kind of for a foreign film draw opposite Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, and Public Enemies. Wow. <laughs> oh, much more fun films. Um, over eight weeks of theatrical play in the U.S., it eventually made it onto five screens. I couldn't find how much the movie made at the Chilean box office nor anywhere else in the world. All I found financially was that it made just $33,447 here in the States, which uh, in today's dollars, 37461 that's all I know, and I have a feeling, Pete, that's how I'm going to be faring on this particular series. All right. Well, noble effort. I love that you were in conversation on email <laughs> with the producer. Of Tell me! That is delightful. Yeah. Delightful. <laughs> Man. Let's, let's, uh, I think it's time, Andy. Let's, let's rank it. Let's do it. Oh, what surprises doth Flickchart have in store for us? Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel or just swipe over in the show notes there and you'll find the word Flickchart. And if you tap on it, you'll jump straight over to Tony Monero on Flickchart where you can add it to your own list. Let's see. I've already added this to my list, Andy, and it didn't go well. <laughs> All right. Well, first up, we have Tony Monero or Hot Fuzz. Well, that's an easy one. That is Hot Fuzz for sure. Uh, Tony yeah. Monero or Christmas in July. What a delight. That's amazing film. how easy these are. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. at, no, at no point did I see anybody in Christmas in July crapping on other people's clothes. <laughs> Tony Monero <laughs> or Stripes? I will go yeah, with Stripes. You're going to say Stripes. Yep. Yeah. 
Tony Monero. That's what I. I don't even need to do it. I'm just gonna guess for you. Oh, is that what it is? Because that's the rest of this. For you, like, I'm yeah. guessing this goes straight to the bottom. You already said <laughs> not Tony Monero. To yeah, no, a spoiler done. Tony Monero or Marty? Marty for say me. Marty. Tony Monero. Yep. Yeah, you you just keep saying for me. Tony Tony Monero okay. or apt pupil. Oh, see, this is one where I have a feeling you would make a show of conflict, but ultimately the show is empty, and you're gonna say apt pupil. I'm actually feeling like I would say Tony Monero, <laughs> but I would say Curses. I would say there's conflict here because I I I enjoyed apt pupil so much when I saw it in the theater, and then when our, when we rewatched it and talked about it, I was so disappointed by the film. It was just kind of such a mess. Whereas Tony Monero, I actually feel like as much as I dislike it, I feel like there's more going for it. So I'm going to say Tony Monero. That's right, Pete. Let's do this thing. Let's do it. One, two, three. Paper. Rock. Oh. Oh, look how easy that was. (laughs) All right. Apt pupil takes it. Tony Monero or Rush. <laughs> I will say Rush. Ugh, that feels dirty. Tony Monero or the women. <laughs> okay, here's where we get into a point of conflict. <laughs> Which of these movies is more offensive? <laughs> oh, this is tough. Uh, this is tough. <laughs> I am uh, I'm I am obviously I think I've already told you. I'm going to say the women. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm. I'm not gonna. I don't feel great about it. I have a lot of problems with the women, but there is. If I'm gonna compare these two worlds in terms of the world that they build for me, uh, I prefer the period and the 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 um, the production design and the just sort of the fabulousness of of the era of the women and I would be more delighted even to just watch that film on mute. Uh, and just enjoy the visual presentation of it than I would to revisit Tony Monero. Well, I and it leaves me in a place like I was last week um, with uh, putting Meek's cutoff, or a couple weeks ago, putting Meek's cutoff up against the women. Um, I Tony Monero is not a fun film to watch. I appreciate stuff that's going on in Tony Monero, but I do feel that the women, there's some cattiness and there are some delicious little moments throughout the film. Uh, so I'm going to go with the women. Wow. There you go. Yeah, here we are, Pete. Tony Monero or Meek's cutoff. <laughs> you know, this is what I like to call the uh, Steve Sarmento memorial vote. <laughs> I choose Meek's cutoff, Andy. I oh, gosh, this is really painful because <laughs> I wouldn't watch I either. A lot of, of shakeup at the again. bottom of the list. I man. know. I know. <laughs> I, boy, I, I probably would pick Tony Monero. I just really? felt like Meek's cutoff was uh, weird. It, it It's like, you know, the middle of a film with no beginning or end. And I, I just didn't appreciate that. I, I think that Kelly has done much better films. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, Pablo does, especially now that we're starting off at the bottom. Hopefully we'll only go up from here. Um, yeah, but I'm right. going to say Pablo, uh, Tony Monero still. All right, let's do it. All right, ready? One, One, two, two, three. three, Rock. Oh, geez. Man. (laughs) I'm feeling rather RPS empowered. Well, there we are, Pete. (laughs) 
<laughs> Tony Monero. Two ninety nine out of two ninety nine. It is at the bottom wow. of the list. That's what happens when you poop on a disco jacket. <laughs> <laughs> you don't mess with it. You don't mess with Travolta's jacket. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah, this was not a delightful film to watch. I'm curious, though, what does this do for your letterboxed? This, for me, was actually a two-and-a-half-star film, but I will not give it a a like. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, I will give it a half-star, and I also will not give it a like. Ooh, okay. So where does that put it? One-and-a-half one stars? Yeah, that puts it at one-and-a-half. There you go. One-and-a-half stars and no likes for Tony Manero. <laughs> It was it was not an enjoyable or entertaining film that also happens to uh, to have a uh, it it absolutely has a story to tell. I I I'm with you. I appreciate what the film was trying to do. I did not connect with it to the point that I found it uh, uh, really exasperating. Yeah, and I I didn't appreciate it much until it was over, and and in thinking about it, I was like, okay, I really enjoyed what Pablo was saying here about uh, life in uh, under this dictatorship and how awful it was, and and just what a terrible place it put people. I find that super fascinating, and I am glad that I will have that to think about, but I'm not going to have to see this film to continue thinking about that. So there we <laughs> there we are. Okay. Okay, outstanding. Where do we go from here? Well, next week, we are going to be joining Pablo Lorraine again on his next film and his next collaboration with Alfredo Castro to talk about Postmortem, his 2010 film taking place just before the rise of the Pinochet dictatorship. This ought to be interesting to see where this, um, how this hits after our, our entree into Lorraine's films. Uh, that's it. I'm, I'm relieved that we have finished, and now I'm ready go to bed. All right, man. Well, I have a floor to go smash. So see ya. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I I went high because I went low. <laughs> uh, mine comes from, it's a five star, from Win to One in 2013. He says, Bunuel lives. And I think you know how we feel about Bunuel. We like Bunuel. We did. So I'm, I offer this with all the credit that it is due. What was that, Viridiana? Viridiana, yeah. 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 All right, here we go. Tony Monero dangles 70s Chile from a nightmarish memory. Greed, insanity, and U.S. exports flit above the grunge world of Raul Peralta and rule this little man so desperately in tow to his ego. Sad but undeniably alluring, Alfredo Castro plays Raul Peralta so perfectly. His deliberate movements, his unreadable but nonetheless hyper-expressive face catch you up so that his periodic violent acts seemed almost illusory. Did I just see that? How could I find myself rooting for him in the Chilean Tony Monero TV contest? And at the end, why did I feel that an injustice had been done to him? 
Pablo Lorraine burst out into the international scene with an Academy Awards Best Foreign Language Film nomination for his film No, the third in a trilogy with Tony Manero. Having seen this and his second film in the group Postmortem, I can see that Lorraine works with essences. For Tony Manero, it's horror. A film poem succinct in its message, All Roads Lead to Hell, Fever, Sickness, Horror. It's right out of Boonwell's Mexican period. I actually think this is an astute uh, review, and I really even though I didn't like the film, I think that he's saying some interesting things and I'm very excited to see how the other two films stack up. If Tony Manero was horror, what are postmortem and no, uh, I'm all that much more curious. So I have nothing to laugh at in this review. Yeah. I, well, hopefully mine will provide a tiny bit of comedy. <laughs> you know, I didn't love the film, but I found a lot of interesting stuff to think about with the film. Glitter Kitten, on the other hand, <laughs> gave it one star and said simply, why did I watch this? This was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I'm rather bewildered by the fact that some people found some good in it. This guy was a horrible person. He did horrible things and fancied himself to be like Tony Monero. Then it ended. That's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yes, it was, Glitter Kitten. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>